Thank you. Thank you so much. I would like to offer a special prayer today for dads because this is Father's Day. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the men who play such an important role in people's lives. We ask your blessings on those who are fathers, men who seek to model Christ-like character while raising their children. We pray that you'll give them courage to keep doing what they know they should, even when they feel inadequate, as we can at times. Give them a sense of partnership with you, because we can't do it alone, and we're grateful that we don't have to. Give them the satisfaction that comes from the hard work of fatherhood so that they can enjoy seeing their children grow and learn and develop. Father, we thank you for those who have stepped up and stepped in to the role of father for those who don't have a father, maybe for children who aren't their own. Bless the stepfathers, the grandfathers, uncles, older brothers, foster dads, and men who are looked up to as role models to kids who need strong men in their lives. And Heavenly Father, we ask that you would comfort those who are grieving at this time of year, those men and women who are grieving the loss of a father. We also ask that you would provide comfort and a sense of your presence in the lives of those who are navigating a strained relationship with their earthly father, or perhaps are navigating a life lived with an absentee father. We pray that in those cases, you will become the father to the fatherless. And we pray for those who want to be fathers, men who have a longing to be a dad someday and for whatever reasons aren't yet. And Lord, I'm praying for those young men who are about to become fathers, that you're gonna give them an extra special sense of your peace and courage as they step into a new role because their identification will switch. Instead of being their own person, they'll be their baby's daddy. And I'm so grateful for the fact that you give us that sense of hope for a future as lived out in fathers who are raising children to respect and love you. God, we thank you for being our heavenly father, the one who desires that we know you personally and the one who forgives us again and again and again. Thank you for loving us so much that you would give your very life for ours and by providing a way back to you through Jesus Christ. We pray all this in the authority of Jesus Christ, the one who came down to show us unmistakably what the Father's heart really looks like. Amen. Thank you for tuning in with us today. Now, we're going through 1 Corinthians. We got through one whole verse on the first Sunday because it was mostly introductory and background material. Made it a little bit farther last week. And today, we're starting at verse 10. We're taking a chunk of scripture each time so that we can dive into what the Lord has for us in his inspired word, and specifically through the Apostle Paul and the people he met that were part of his missionary journeys. I think this is particularly appropriate today since we're talking about fathers and fatherhood and leadership, because there's some really good leadership principles that grow out of what we're going to learn in this passage today. Who's your leader? We had a situation way back when I was in college, and I spent a summer touring with a group called Continentals. We were in Colorado, a beautiful state. I know that there's one person signed in with us today. Hi, Rick. He's uh, got a view from his back deck that if you could see it, your jaw would drop. So he's in God's Cathedral in church right now. But we were in Colorado, and they have several really nice amphitheaters in Colorado where they the beauty is all around you and you can go to a concert and sit in gorgeous seating area 
and the stage is there and the red rocks are behind you. And that was one of the situations we were preparing to perform in back when I was in college. However, the weather reports were saying that there's a possibility of some pop-up thunder showers later that evening. So our director left us in charge of setting up and he ran with somebody into town to scope out a plan B venue in case we needed to move at the last minute. Well, a little bit of a leadership struggle broke out because a couple of folks who kind of thought they had leadership abilities were chiming in, suggesting where we should put this, where we should put the band, and the band should be up high so that they can act as monitors for the choir in front of them. Because if we have a difficulty in hearing, the choir would hear better if the sound was coming from behind them. And it, it was probably, we're making it way too difficult. And it was really a power struggle because nobody was clearly in charge. Now, when the director was gone, everybody was trying to fill that vacuum of leadership. It happens in every organization, including a family. It can happen when there's a strong leader and that leader is absent, perhaps even just for a short time, other people will step in and try to become the leader for that group. Well, unfortunately, or fortunately, I'm not sure which, it's probably fortunately that we didn't have to worry about it because the storms came. We had to pack everything up at the last minute. We moved it into town. Fortunately, the local high school opened up their gymnasium we were able to set up everything in there. And it started working fine. We were playing and performing. The band was hot. The singers were singing at the tops of their lungs. And then we heard a big thunderclap and all the electricity went out. <laughs> all you could hear was the pounding of keys, but no sound coming out of the electronic keyboard. And the brass, of course, we were playing real strong. So all we had was wind instruments and singers, but we slogged through. We finished the concert with just a little bit of lighting in there that was through a generator. It worked out, but something happened to show us a couple of examples of what happens. We all got humbled because something came at us from the outside that we had no control over. That happens. It happens with Zoom meetings. It happens with COVID-19. It happens in every one of our lives, including family life, where something happens that comes into the outside and suddenly we kind of all shrink in terms of our own leadership ability. And we say, well, we have a common problem. We need to join together and solve that. Fortunately for us, that's what happened back in Colorado. We had something that had to be solved and we quit trying to assert ourselves as to who was going to get the credit for being the best leader. We just had to solve the problem. That's something that Paul had to deal with in his folks. He had to teach these people in Corinth that he was writing to in first Corinthians to put aside their differences and solve the common problem. Something from the outside was starting to change everything for them as well. As we saw last week, because we had a Roman leader who was kicking certain people groups out of Rome, which is why Aquila and Priscilla had moved all the way to Corinth. And that's where Paul started to meet them. Well, Paul is starting to address these leader and leader issues in his letter to 1 Corinthians. He dealt with something that I've started to see pop up more and more in articles and news reports. It's called team politics. Of course, we wouldn't know a thing about that in America, would we? Yeah, I think I've seen more team politics in action right now in this last few months than I ever have in my entire life. But team politics can affect every organization, no matter how small or how large. And what happens with team politics is that all of a sudden, whichever team I identify with, that team is more interested in winning at all costs than in trying to solve real problems. 
And when you get that, it's contentious. There's a lot of headbutting. There's a lot of finger pointing. The blame game comes around. Everybody's seeking not to take responsibility for, for solving their own problem, but they're trying to blame other people for why they can't get reelected or whatever the, the case may be. You know what it's like? Well, listen to this passage as I read verses 10 through 17 and be thinking about leadership, team politics, and solving common problems, all of which factors into what Paul was writing about in 1 Corinthians 1, 10 through 17. He says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household, that would not be Chloe Elwell, this is Chloe that lived back in Paul's day, just to make that clear. Some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. Somebody told the truth about what was going on when Paul got word of it. Uh, what I mean is this. One of you says, well, I follow Paul. Another says, I follow Apollos. And another, I follow Cephas, which is another word for Peter. Still others say, I follow Christ. And then he asks, and this, of course, he knows that they know the answer to these rhetorical questions. He says, is Christ divided? And of course, the assumed answer is, <laughs> of course not. Was Paul crucified for you? Again, that's absurd. Of course not. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? No. I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius. Remember those guys that we talked about last week? They were the synagogue leaders, which he led to faith in Christianity. And they had to keep replacing the synagogue leaders because they kept becoming Christians. So no one can say that you were baptized in my name. And it's almost as though perhaps the Emanuensis, the secretary that was writing this down, said, well, Paul, what about, you remember this guy? Because he puts a parenthesis in there and says, well, yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anybody else. He's trying to make sure that he's being honest and very forthright about that, rather than saying something that he would regret later by getting it wrong. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel not with wisdom and eloquence, although we know because of Paul's background, he could have done it with both of those things, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So in other words, he's saying, I'm not coming to you with eloquence. It's not my oratory skills that are leading people. It's the power of the cross of Christ. And when I preach Christ and him crucified, that's when people get changed because that's the focal point of the gospel. Without the cross, the cross of Christ, the gospel would be powerless. So we looked at some background and we looked at Aquila and Priscilla and how they started to come into Paul's life and were used by God to be really strong missionary helpers. They were tent makers and Paul worked right alongside them for a time, helping them make tents because he was helping put food on the table for himself so that he wasn't going to be a drain on anybody around him. Well, Aquila and Priscilla we can see through the book of Acts some further background, some history that gives us a clue not only about Aquila and Priscilla, but also about this guy named Apollos, one of the guys that he mentioned in that passage when he said, some say, I follow Apollos, I follow Peter, I follow Paul, I follow Christ. Well, Aquila and Priscilla traveled with Paul as far as Ephesus, but then Paul left them there to continue doing the work of ministry, and then Paul continued to reason in the synagogue week after week, and then he left and traveled on the Mediterranean, 
I know a young man who did that. He took a school trip studying along the Mediterranean coast in a ship. So hello, Jacob. I hope you're watching today. What an amazing area. What a, a crazy part of the world. That's what Paul did. He hopped in a ship. He was heading east across the Mediterranean. He got there to Caesarea, where Joy and I got to stand and look out at a hippodrome right on the sea, uh, right there at Caesarea Maritima in Israel. And then he made his way over to Jerusalem. It's only about 75 miles, not terribly far. And they walked everywhere. So he could have made that in just a few days' time. And he greeted the church there, gave them the report. And then after that, he went down to Antioch. A short time there, he continued to travel from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening the, the disciples. So Paul was becoming a regional missionary. Paul was doing then what some of the missionaries that we support are doing now. When you think about Mark Sturkin and some of the various areas that he's starting new works and leading them, he's doing exactly the work that Paul was doing. Same thing with George Collins, um, the Garcias down in Chile. We've got folks in Kenya, in Africa. We've got folks that are reaching into some hard-to-reach areas in other parts of the world, some closed areas where they can't use the M-word, missionary, because they get them in trouble, because they have a zealousness, a, a zeal, a love for these people who need to find about the love of Christ, just as Paul did back then. So here's where we get the important information, this background, on the leaders in Corinth. This is from Acts 18, 24 through 28. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, meaning he came down from Egypt, came to Ephesus, and he was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of Scripture. So here's this guy that automatically we're starting to get a sense that he and Paul were probably cut from similar cloth. They were intellectuals. They knew a lot about Scripture. Verse 25, he had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately though he knew only of the baptism of John. So we can see that this Apollos kind of fellow was maybe a little bit like Ravi Zacharias, who's with the Lord now. Many of us have studied some of the things by looking at YouTube videos or taking some of the courses that were taught by Ravi. Just a, a learned, amazing man who knew all about other people groups and their backgrounds and religions and philosophies. That was the kind of guy Apollos was. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. And the synagogue, we found out when we were in Israel, is not just a place they would go to church. During the week, it would be kind of a community center, and a lot of people would be welcomed in there so they could talk about the current trends, philosophies, have discussions. It was just an open place for people to gather. So this is what Apollos was doing. He was going into that synagogue, a public gathering place, and talking about things that were of great importance back then. So when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him into their home. They're exhibiting this gift of hospitality. They were exactly the right people for Apollos at that time in his life. They began to explain the way about the real meaning of baptism, not just John's baptism, but the deeper meaning that he needed to learn. They didn't castigate him. They didn't shame him. They said, can we tell you some things that I think you may not have heard about yet? Because it was spreading very quickly. And it was all pretty new to him. Because they were gracious, he graciously received their instruction. And it gave Apollos even more apologetics, these uh, uh, wonderful things that he could share from truth to the people that he was sharing with, so he could convince them of the truth. Verse 27, when Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, 
the brothers and sisters encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. And when he arrived, he was a great help to those who, by grace, had believed. For he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. Interesting fellow, this Apollos. He was intelligent, eloquent, fervent in spirit. He taught openly, boldly in public places, but he had this inadequate understanding of the deeper meaning of baptism since Jesus had risen again. And this was important. It was important enough that Aquila and Priscilla decided, yeah, we need to share this uh, truth with him about the deeper meaning of baptism. They kindly deepened his understanding. They did so with humility and grace something that I think really is a good lesson, dads, for you as you're trying to instruct your kids. Apollos then traveled from Ephesus to Corinth and watered what Paul had planted, because Paul later talked about how some cultivate, some plant seeds, others come along and water, and some reap the harvest. Well, Paul had literally planted that new church, and so Apollos came along and kept watering it. He was sowing the more seeds of truth, but he was really watering what Paul had already begun there so that there would be a great harvest one day. Let me go back here and say just a quick word about that baptism, because some of you may have a couple of questions about that. The baptism of John was in preparation for the coming Messiah. He was the one to herald the coming Messiah that he knew was Jesus Christ. But there were some who started to understand that baptism took on a deeper meaning after Jesus died on a cross, was buried, stayed in the tomb for three days, and then rose again and appeared to all these witnesses. Why was it different? Well, it was different for a couple of reasons. First of all, the practical thing, and it may be a surface level difference, was there were some ritual baptisms or cleansings that people would have to do as a part of their worship practice. That would be done again and again. And it was sort of a, a recommitment of their walk with God, so to speak. But they felt that it was important that these rituals be repeated, just like the sacrifices had to be done. They had certain sacrifices and certain festivals that they would have to go to every year in their Jewish history. But when Jesus came along, he was the unblemished lamb who had given his life for good. And the gospel is all about this Jesus who fulfills, fulfills everything in the Old Testament once and for all time. So the practical outshot of this thing is you don't have to be rebaptized. Once you're baptized in Jesus, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, that's one and done. Because uh, his atonement for everybody is good forever. It was the eternal atonement rather than a temporary ritual. That's why I think it's also equated sometimes with the other ceremony that we partake in called the Lord's Supper. As we know, the Passover was celebrated every year by Jewish families. But when Jesus gave the Passover brand new meaning by having that upper room discourse with his disciples and breaking bread, showing that it represented his body, which was broken for them, and pouring the wine, which represented his blood, which became the new covenant. All that became permanent. We do have communion periodically because it's a good reminder of what Jesus did for us. That's a, a living picture of the gospel. But when it comes to baptism, we don't have to be rebaptized again and again. So that was the practical upshot of that. The deeper meaning, though, is rather than identifying with just a ritual so that we could put our faith in the ritual, we're identifying with Christ because he's the source of our atonement. So that was sort of a, a deeper and more lasting meaning to baptism, which Apollos finally discovered because of Aquila and Priscilla.
So as he started sharing that, it started pointing to the Messiah and it, it gave him even more ammunition, so to speak, so that he could debate and reason with people from the scriptures to prove that Jesus was the fulfillment of everything the prophets had foretold in the Old Testament. Well, Paul had to address this division that was starting to grow in the church in Corinth. He's saying, some of you say, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Peter. Still others say, I follow Christ. And then he just, he gets right down to brass tacks. Now, remember that he's very gracious in his introduction to the letter. But now he's asking questions in such a way that they would clearly know where he's going with this. He's saying, is Christ divided? Of course not. Was Paul crucified for you? <laughs> no. I haven't even died yet physically. Of course, it was Christ who did that. And only Christ could atone for your sins because he's the only perfect, unblemished lamb to have done that. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? He's asking these because he's a good rhetorical question asker, and he knows that the people would be reasoning in their own minds and thinking, well, no, I, I can see that that's kind of ludicrous when I think about it, because it was ludicrous. Now, think about what James said. He's the half-brother of Christ. The reason I say half-brother is because Christ, of course, came through a virgin birth, but James came around and understood Christ to actually be the Messiah. It took him a while, because growing up with this boy, he's thinking, he's just my brother. No big deal. But then after the death, burial, and resurrection, James recognized, oh, this is no ordinary man. And then James became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And he writes this, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? James raises a good question. And Paul and James would definitely be on the same page here, that the real problem here was pride. They were playing team politics. The reason they wanted to follow a certain kind of leader is probably because either they thought their team was better than some other team. Maybe they liked this guy's teaching style better. Maybe they liked this guy's interpretation of a certain passage that lined up with my interpretation. So I'm gonna go that direction with him. And they started nitpicking at little differences among each other rather than keeping the gospel at the center of what they did. Because all the little nitpicky differences fall away when we exalt Jesus Christ and he becomes the focus of our unity. Pride was at the heart of that. Meanwhile, back at Colorado, when I was talking to you about that amphitheater setup time, we started kind of going back through that situation and we realized, yeah, there was a lot of pride involved. Most of the guys that were in the band that wanted to be set up high behind the choir, they just wanted to be seen because normally we were tucked away behind somewhere down on a lower level and the choir was up on risers because they were the focal point. They needed to be seen and heard. The band was just there to support that. But some of those band members were a little prideful and they thought, yeah, but this would be a, a way for me to get seen. Everybody can look at me. Woo, look at me, look at me. It was pride. So that's why the team politics started to line up very quickly as people started to have an argument about where we should put the band versus the choir. Some people do that even today. They'll say, oh, I like that Bible teacher. He represents my team. I like that interpretation better. Rather than listening to several and saying, okay, I want to do the very best I can to come out with the strongest spirit-led interpretation based on the best scholarship that I can come up with, instead of finding somebody who agrees with me, and that becomes my team. These are real team politics arguments that have really taken place in real churches. You know how we know? Because back in the day, people used to have these monthly business meetings and people would take minutes. And so there were records 
of, in these minutes of these actual arguments that took place. One church spent a long time discussing whether they should turn some property that they owned outside their sanctuary into a playground for kitties or a cemetery. Now the creative side in me thinks, why not do both? We could have little tykes headstones. <laughs> there could be some really creative memorials done that you could solve the problem. No big deal. Okay. Probably a good thing I wasn't in charge of that business meeting back then. It was a real issue. How about removing the sanctuary clock? They had a 45 minute discussion about whether or not the sanctuary clock on the back wall should be removed. Hey, I'm a pastor. I'll tell you, pastors don't look at those clocks on the wall anyway. It doesn't really matter. Deviled eggs at potluck. Should we have deviled eggs at a potluck in a Christian church? Oh my goodness. I would say problem solved as long as you balance it out by having angel food cake for dessert. Rick Warren out in California had given a list of several of these kinds of arguments from teen politics in real churches. And he said, that's like rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. <laughs> the ship is sinking, folks. If you're spending that much time and energy debating issues like that, you have lost your focus on that, which is really important. And what you fail to do is to do what Paul said we should do for one another. And that is to outdo one another in showing honor toward one another. Each of you, he says, should look, and the word there is scopantes, not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, you see that S-K-O-P at the beginning of that Greek word? It says your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus Christ. We should focus on him. That's scope like the scope on a rifle, the scope on a microscope when you're trying to focus on something tiny, or if you're looking at something far away, you'd use a telescope, or if you want to focus on bad breath, you'd use scope. Okay, I that one just came out of nowhere. Just checking to see if you're really listening. Anyway, the scope, the focus should be on Jesus Christ because when we're focusing on him and on the gospel, those petty little issues just fall away. People outdo one another in honoring one another. And they'll say, this doesn't have anything to do with salvation, so why are we spending so much time on it? Let's honor one another. Let's come to a good, strong consensus, but let's keep the main thing the main thing, and let's love each other in such a way that they'll say, I want to be a part of a group like that. See how they love each other? They must be Christ followers. That's what Paul wanted to happen. Think about Christ himself in that passage that we just looked at. That wasn't Christ's situation. He wasn't thinking, oh man, I'm going to get these folks that did me wrong. He could have. He had all the power at his disposal could have called 10,000 angels and wiped them out. But instead, he's hanging there on a cross, thinking about people that were considering him their enemy because they didn't know what they were doing. He says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. That's thinking about others even more highly than yourself. And that's the attitude we should have in the church if we're Christ followers. When we're focusing on Christ, and when we're trying to allow him to start transforming us from the inside out through his Holy Spirit, so we can gain his character qualities, which he promises he'll put into us, then we just lay down those deck chair arguments. And we start saying, hey, you know, you've got a great idea. Let's do that. Let's let you use your spiritual gift to serve the body in that way. It doesn't have to look like my way. We're all going to do things slightly differently because we're all gifted differently. But let's champion each other's cause. I think my dad did a great job of teaching my sister and me to celebrate each other's successes. 
And that, dads, is something you can do for your family. I know some of you do a great job of that already. When one of your kids, who's gifted differently than the other kids, has a success, you train your other kids to support that success. We're all going to look a little different because of our spiritual giftedness. That's okay. That's what I'm really excited about growing out of this Sack Lunch Saints initiative. Because as we start to see a lot of different people, hopefully all around the world, exercise their spiritual gifts by sharing hope in some way, we're going to see just how unique and different everybody is, and yet we're focused on the same purpose. One of the things that happens when we focus on Christ is we stop trying to be right. We just stop trying to say, I'm going to win every argument. Who cares? <laughs> what really matters is that we're going to win the hearts and minds of the people who need Christ. That's what we should be about. If you win the argument, but you lose the soul of somebody, what good is that? And we stop playing team politics. It just wears people out and it destroys organizations, including churches, when we play team politics. Instead, we start honoring one another and looking for ways to build each other up. We fix the problem instead of affixing blame. We put others first by keeping Christ as the head of the body, which is what Paul's gonna to allude to a little bit farther on in 1 Corinthians. When we keep Christ at the head, all the other leaders recognize, hey, we're all subservient to him. There's not one person who's stepping in to fill some sort of a leadership vacuum and to say, oh, I've got control now. This is all about power and control. We evaluate ourselves and we're constantly looking to see the, that the Holy Spirit would remind us where we need to change and where we need to repent so that we can always be in strong connection with the head of the body instead of blaming others and trying not to take responsibility for ourselves. So what did Paul do? Like I mentioned when we first started the series, he said so many gracious, loving things to the believers in Corinth. He started out by showing them that they had great potential because they had already become believers in Christ, even though they used to not be. He pointed out how far they had come instead of starting with how far they had fallen. Dads, that's pretty good. He reminded them of who they had been and who they were now in Christ. And we'll see that later on. He uses that couplet. You used to be like this, but now you're like this. Just reminding them of their identity in Jesus Christ. Because our identity should come in what God thinks of us, not what other people think of us. So dad, you've got a great example. The godly walk with integrity, blessed are their children who follow them. You follow the example of a heavenly father who literally would lay down his life for us. And he showed us that through his son, Jesus Christ, because they are one and the same. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Laid his life down on our behalf to show us just how much he loves us and to provide a way back to him because we were separated from him by sin. Man, that's love. That's true love. Love that would say, I'm going to take the heat on myself because I love you that much, and I really want this relationship to be intact again. That's the kind of God we serve. Let me wrap up with these two dad moments, because in thinking about this on one of my walks, I was thinking about times when God has actually done that for me and shown me how this team politics can come into play, and it can really come in and damage organizations and churches and families one time when I was about nine years old or so, I'm guessing it was about nine, I watched my dad on a church softball team. 
Um, I'm glad that Jeff and Megan set the right tone and that all of you guys on our church softball team represent Living Water and they represent Christ really well. You guys put a lot of grace out there on the field. Good for you. Keep it up. But dad was playing on a church softball team and they did exactly what our church has done. They joined a city league instead of a church league because they wanted to be salt and light. They wanted to get out and mix with the people in the real community and just have fun with them and show them that Christians like to play sports too. So they were doing that. And one night when my dad hit what was going to be a great triple, and he, he normally didn't do that. He was good at hitting, at hitting singles because he just wasn't terribly beefy. I kind of got some of his genetics. Uh, and he hit what would, what would have been a great triple because it went way out between the, uh, the left fielder and the center fielder. And they were motioning him to go on around. And, and then somebody said, slide into third, slide into third, which he did. But as he did so, it kicked up a bunch of dust and somebody stepped right in front of him. So the only umpire that we had that day was behind home plate. Well, he really couldn't see specifically when the ball hit that guy's glove and when my dad's foot hit the bag. Well, everybody else could see it. My dad's foot hit the bag well before the ball hit the glove. So he was safe. But the umpire made the best call he could given what he had from his vantage point, And he said, you're out. Now, those of you sports fanatics, if you're out there right now, you're thinking, oh, I bet I know what came next. And you'd be right. All the people emptied out of the dugout. And they started running out there contesting that call. And they were starting to yell and scream, hey, we saw it. It was a mile. He was, it was becoming mayhem really quickly. But my dad, and I remember this because I was a kid and I watched him do something that just floored me at the time. He held up his hand, and he was the only one who could have silenced everybody because he was the one who had been called out when he knew he was safe. He held up his hand, and he said, there's more at stake here than winning a game. If the ump says I'm out, I'm out. And the other people were kind of, I mean, what could they say? He had silenced it. He took care of the situation and they all went back, got their gloves, went out to the outfield and start the new inning. But he knew that there was something greater at stake there. He knew that if we were focusing on being good witnesses, that we were going to destroy, he and his team were going to destroy the witness to those people they were playing sports with by acting in a way that would have been just terribly rude because it was team politics, literally a team. And they were playing politics right then. He says, it's not about winning. It's about winning the hearts and minds of those other people. This is a sport. We're doing it for fun. If we're turning this into something that it's not supposed to be, we're losing the point. And they got that. Well, that stuck. And then fast forward 35 years down the road. Now I've got kids. Now I've got a kid who's in sports. He's playing soccer. And I'm standing with fellow dads in an indoor soccer arena in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And all of a sudden, somebody pushes my kid from behind, a dangerous move. And all I said was, hey, watch the pushing. I didn't swear. I can attest to that. People were there. They'll tell you. But the guy next to me, who was a real jokester, he's one of the dads that he just had kind of a mischievous smile, and he loved to pull pranks on people. He said some words that were a little more colorful than the words that I shared. But the young referee turned around and heard that word. And when he turned around to look at us, my prankster friend had his hand up like that and he was pointing at me, which means that the referee looked right at me and he said, you're gonna to have to leave the field. 
And I said, I beg your pardon? He said, you're going to have to leave the field. If you don't, we're going to penalize the whole team. And I was looking at my friend to make sure that he was going to fess up and say, no, it was me. But he just kept his finger pointed at me. <laughs> oh, Jim. And so I finally said, well, I've got a decision to make. I can try to assert my rights and be right and make sure that my reputation is upheld, or I can just give Jim the satisfaction of pulling a great prank on me, and there were 10 minutes left in the game, and I can walk behind the concession stand and wait for the game to be over, which is what I did. I just walked around the corner, listened to the game, but I kept them from being penalized. And then Jim had a good laugh about it after the game. The reason I was able to do that without getting real hot under the collar is because I was thinking all the way back to what my dad had done when I was nine years old. When we look at the Apostle Paul and we see the kind of leadership that he's trying to develop in that church in Corinth, we're starting to see, okay, it's not about team politics. It's not about being right. It's not about asserting ourselves or filling a leadership vacuum. It's about being an example that our kids will respect and look up to. It's about doing something that's going to stay with them for the rest of their lives so that when they're in a situation, they'll have some good examples to look back on and say, yeah, this is how my dad handled that. I know how to respond now. I'm going to tackle it this way. I'm really grateful that we've had some good examples like that. I'm grateful for my own dad who set a good example for me, but I'm especially grateful for God the Father for setting the best example of all because we can serve him and follow him knowing he's going to always do the right thing on our behalf. So dads, I'd like for us to pray, and then I'm going to turn it over to Steve for a final benediction. Father, bring these examples to mind and help dads today to put your word into their hearts and minds so that they'll be able to set good examples for their children. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.